to It's Wednesday, June 8th, 2022, and this is KBIA's Views of the News. Our weekly roundtable on media behaviors comes to you from the Futures Lab studio at the Reynolds Journalism Institute. I'm Amy Simons, and here with me are my colleagues, Kathy Kiley and Damon Kiso. On our program this week, the January 6 hearings start tomorrow night, live in prime time. You'll find them on just about every network but one. Who will be watching? Who won't? And will it even matter? CNN's new chief says it's time for the network to cut back on the use of the term breaking news. It's overly dramatic, and most of the time when it's used, stories aren't even breaking anymore. We're going to talk about that and some other changes there as well. And the Columbia Daily Tribune's parent company announces it's putting off those changes to daily delivery that were supposed to start next month. We'll talk about that and a lot more that we hope to get to before our half hour is up today. But we're going to start with something else that's been going on locally, how the deaths of two Boone County attorneys were covered during the course of this week so far. Saturday morning, Boone County Prosecutor Dan Knight was found in his home of an apparent gunshot wound. And defense attorney Stephen Wise was found Monday morning in his home after a colleague called police seeking a well-being check when he had failed to show up for work. During a news conference on Saturday outside of Knight's home, Columbia Police Chief Jeff Jones told reporters that there was no evidence of foul play and that the department investigation was wrapping up pending an autopsy that was going to be happening later this week. Police called in the Boone County Sheriff's Department to investigate Wise's death and Captain Brian Lear of the Boone County Sheriff's Department issued a statement indicating that his department had been called in by CPD to investigate uh, and that was because of a uh, perceived apparent conflict of interest. We'll talk more about that in a second but that there does not to be a appear to be, pardon me, any foul play in his death as well. What we have here is most likely a coincidence and the type of a coincidence that in a city larger than Columbia and a county more populated than Boone County likely happens all the time. Attorneys who argue on different sides of a courtroom passing away in in proximity time-wise to one another. This probably is what happened there too. Definition of the word coincidence. Um, the problem now is on Facebook and other social media, people see that coincidence and start to talk about it so that conversation grows. And it's obviously the police and, and others have made it as clear as possible that there is no connection. And these are both, uh, well, at least one is a, a suicide. Um, the well, pro- we, we don't know that yet. We won't know. We won't know until after. Until after an autopsy right. it has been um, has been Completed. conducted yeah. and a, a cause right. of death Fair. is is established. What we right. know is that he was at home with pets and that gunshots were reported. Right. Which is the problem is to understand what actually happened in events like this takes time Mm -hmm. and conversation doesn't want to wait, especially on social media. Exactly. And that's a lot of what we had run into in the past couple of days. Uh, Yesterday morning or yesterday morning, probably before even 
eight o'clock, nine o'clock in the morning, people making that connection, even if it wasn't really there. Well, I think uh, this is the dilemma. I think it is the social dilemma Mm -hmm. for news media organizations. There are things, and for not just for news media organizations, for civic leaders Mm -hmm. like the police, um, where you now are in an environment where speculation can just run rampant. And, um, And I think that behooves people to behave a little bit differently. Uh, I do understand the instinct of the police to hold off, to not say anything. I think there are ways that you could signal what's really going on here without uh, jumping the shark on the on the autopsy. I think that you need to signal very strongly to public to the public what happened here. And I think you can do that by saying they did say, you know, there's gunshots, there doesn't appear to be foul play. I think similarly with the other attorneys, uh, in case you want to signal strongly, there doesn't appear to be any connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need to say that because if you don't, and sometimes even if you do, um, there's going to be people putting dots together that don't belong together on social media. I mean, we in the news business, I think, have started to behave differently. Uh, I can remember one story on Capitol Hill that we never would have written uh, about speculation that a certain member was uh, inebriated on the floor of the Senate, and he wasn't. Mm. Um, And normally we would just not write about that, but because the speculation was so rampant on social media and it was malicious, uh, we had to actually go and write a story that said he wasn't drunk. Um, and, nor- and, and that violates all the rules we would have gone by in the past, but I think it's become necessary because you have to respond to what's on social media. And be in that position of proving a negative. Exactly, exactly. Right. I mean, exactly. Definitely a trend that it's very difficult for people in the business of facts, police in this case are trying to get the facts out in the media also, to to look around the corner of what people might assume and try to answer that question when it's not really a, a, a real question that would come up in the normal course. Yeah, I think it's something you have to factor into your communication strategy now, and it didn't used to be the case. Yeah. I think one of the other things, too, is we talk about that and you bring up the social media aspect and the connections being made on Facebook. I think there's also a responsibility, and this is something that I um, have conversations with students about in um, units that we have about online comments and if that's in what is now a small number of publications that have those comments there or on Facebook or on Instagram, the need to proactively moderate those and um, not just delete because this violated our comment policy, but to reiterate for those people who aren't clicking through, who are reading a headline, reading what we would call a readout or a little blurb, not reading the full context of the story where, you know, people who are questioning why the Boone County Sheriff's Department was brought in, well, buried in a paragraph that's three quarters of the way down. It's mentioned because Stephen Wise had been very critical of the Columbia Police Department and had pending litigation against the department. And so the county sheriff was brought in as an independent agency to investigate in that case. That our responsibility in reporting out that negative, proving that negative, is almost required to be move beyond our primary platforms into these other spaces we're choosing to publish where those conversations are happening. 
Right. That conflict of interest where they move the investigation out of the department is obviously the right thing to do, the ethical thing for them to do. But that obviously could also raise questions elsewhere on social media as to why that happened, unless uh, the media or others are making it clear why that happened. And you can't guess uh, on every question people might have, which is why you do need to monitor social media. And that was one of the things, and a point that came into the story um, in it, what we call a write-through, in a second draft. And I wanted to ask both of you as well, as we have adopted the practice of iterative reporting, reporting what we know as soon as we know it, and adding to it mm. as the story becomes more clear, does that fail us in situations such as this? Should reporters have maybe stepped away from that like late Monday night reporting of uh, the death of Stephen Weiss, maybe waited for that until later in the day on Tuesday where some more of those facts could be collected before the public has an opportunity to jump to some of those conclusions or waiting for some of those calls to be returned that are made late into the evening to get some of those clarifying points. I don't think the public waits for the reporting to start jumping to conclusions. Yeah, that's the but problem. But if they don't I think know that there's the story they, just They yet. do know. They will know before we do in, in many cases, yeah. I think. That, that I think. I think that's exactly right, Damon. I think the, the problem is that um, because everybody with a cell phone is now a publisher, yeah. um, it means, but not everybody is trained as a reporter, um, it means that a lot is out there that really needs to be checked and rechecked. I think one thing that we can do is provide context mm -hmm. and say what we don't know. Okay. Yes. I think that is a really important thing. We do not know this at this point. We cannot say any more than this, and here is why. And I think that is what is going to distinguish a professional news outlet from uh, crazy cunny, cousin Vinny uh, look, listening to the police scanner. Okay. So the power of those voices on social media, we have got to talk about what has been going on at the Washington Post in the last few days, week or so. The staff has been at each other's throats after reporter David Weigel retweeted a YouTuber's exceptionally sexist and misogynist tweet, if I do say so myself, and a female colleague called him out on it. That has led to hundreds, we may even say thousands, of tweets back and forth between staffers and those in the journalism ecosphere chiming in on this about what is considered to be acceptable behavior, what meets the standards for a Washington Post staffer, and so on. It went on and on and on until executive editor Sally Busby, who is very new to her position, sent an email to the staff reminding them to treat each other with respect and kindness. And as you might imagine, that only made it worse, leading to yet another admonition to just cut it out. Mm -hmm. It uh, makes Dean Bacay look really good, with, uh, as we've discussed on this show right. uh, some what was time it about ago, five six weeks ago, when yes. we talked about how he issued kind of a, a, a I don't want to say edict, but suggested people get off Twitter and do their jobs. Exactly, and uh, and we're certainly seeing why he did that right here, Exhibit A. So this has been a this is not a two week story at the Post. It's been a five or ten year story at the Post, um, including some of these same characters, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
one important sort of logistical thing is this happened on a Thursday, Friday last week. So there wasn't obviously opportunity over the weekend to get the staff together. So I think that first communication from the editor from Busby was um, probably just let's do our best to get an email out. And it wasn't until Monday or Tuesday this week that they were able to really talk with staff. That said, the first problem was the joke that's been dealt with, with Weigel being suspended for a month, as Sanmez was five or six years ago for a, a comment about uh, Kobe Bryant's death. Um, so, you know, the punishment has been dealt out. The problem is uh, the newsroom doesn't feel that social media policies that are in place are applied equitably across different employees or different staffers. So that's, I think, what led her maybe to go public with her critique as opposed to first seeing if it would be dealt with internally. Yeah. Well, and this is also a paper where uh, Busby's uh, predecessor, mm-hmm. Marty Barron, famously had mm-hmm. fights with uh, what uh, what some of his reporters were right. posting yes. on uh, Facebook and or on Twitter rather. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you know this uh, this has been a uh, ongoing tension, mm-hmm. uh, and I I hope uh, it's summertime, but I hope some of our students are listening in because uh, this is something we talk about in classes. Yeah. And part of the problem with uh, social media, particularly Twitter, is um, it really encourages you to be edgy, be out there on the edge to get attention. And the problem is it's unclear where you fall off the edge in most news organizations. Uh, it's a fairly new medium, and so uh, I don't think there's any newsroom that's really adequately uh come up with a policy that makes it clear what uh, reporters are allowed to do, what they're not allowed to do. Your news organization really loves you to have followers. Mm-hmm. Um, but if in getting those followers you go off uh, and cross some invisible line, uh, you can get in a lot of trouble. So I think, uh, you know, I think this is going to be an ongoing discussion in newsrooms. But what mm-hmm. I advise our students is uh, to be cautious. And after all, mm-hmm. Do you really need Twitter when you have the Washington Post as your well, platform? And so that's one of my questions, right? Is is this is all happening or has been happening? And we look at Twitter and we look at its audience mm-hmm. and we look at how it has changed over the course of the last four or five years, primarily since you know 2016. Mm-hmm. Does it matter? Is it a relevant space for us still to be in? As I'd really like to hear Damon. Yeah. Right, I know. Yeah. I, and that's where expert. I'm going with yeah. this because Damon is normally when you and I are having these conversations, it's with Ernest Perry, yeah. and Ernest is is anti-social media as it comes. I don't know if he's ever actually been on Twitter, <laughs> let alone have an account, like to even click on a link and read something public. Damon is the antithesis to that, is mm-hmm. a very, very heavy Twitter user. A lot of Academics use it. A lot of journalists use it. Is that audience we're trying to reach even there to be to, to care about this? Where, where's the relevance? So uh, I'm on Twitter. I will say in the past year or so, I've deleted most of my Twitter apps from my phones, my other devices. I'm using it only on the web now. Yes, I'm also very disappointed when I saw that TweetDeck goes away at the end uh, well, of the month. Uh, uh, I'm going to have to redesign some class materials. Another poor choice on their part. <laughs> Travis McMillan, our, our director, uh, just got into my earpiece to say, me too. So anyway, go ahead. Another poor TweetDeck. choice. Uh, but I also have 40,000 people blocked on Twitter, right? So I have a very curated experience on Twitter. Um, I also don't face most of the harassment that you would 
my opinions on Twitter don't get that harassment because I'm a white guy, right? So I barely have to deal with any of those sort of negatives. All I have is is sort of the, the community, which I very closely curated and I get a lot out of. That said, I'm still cutting back, right? Just because it's not as productive as it used to be. I think that it's a different question uh, for people in media. The Twitter's mostly made up of people in media mm-hmm. in terms of the, 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 the volume and sort of the the popularity of people in media, people in in politics, right? So it is certainly still a place for younger journalists to see what's going on um, and to get their voice out there and to promote themselves, which is what we're looking for, especially as um, job security is so much lower at most newsrooms than it was 5, 10, 15 years ago. They need those brands. And then we punish them for having a brand. Well, and that's right. That's the scary part. That's yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah. There's there's an edge. So if you get all those followers yeah. and then you say something or do something mm-hmm. that uh, crosses that line, uh, you really are punished right. in right. what seems like a disproportionate way. And right. so uh, I think this is a real dilemma for younger journalists. Yeah. I mean, a key component here is the Sanmez's uh, complaints with the Post started when she was removed from coverage of the Me Too movement because she admitted to being a survivor of sexual assault. And so it was believed by the editors that she was not capable of objectively covering that issue, right? And so the complaint that runs through that is um, if you're revealing yourself on Twitter, if you're being sort of a full human being on Twitter, um, you're seen as not being objective especially if you're a female reporter of color, right? And that was certainly the underlying tension in this particular case. Tomorrow night, prime time, the January 6th committee will make its case to the public holding the first of a series of evening hearings. Committee members have indicated that we're gonna see images and hear testimony never shared with the American public before that is informed by thousands of interviews from the likes of Ivanka Trump, Jared Kushner, Rudy Giuliani, and some rank and file rioters. I'll be watching you. Oh, 100%. I'm, I'm going to make the popcorn and yeah. I'm I mean, already I'm so, trying to think about what the snacks are. You know, the only people I feel sorry for are the reporters uh, who, who are what I used to be, the people who are out there covering it. Mm-hmm. Because if this were a daytime hearing at a normal time, mm-hmm. you would have time to go back to the office and figure out what the lead is. Mm-hmm. But uh, these folks are going to be right on deadline. So uh, I'm just going to be very thankful that I don't have to figure out what the lead is on deadline. Mm. Will you be watching? I I won't watch a minute of it live. Okay, talk about why for a second. I know the basic uh, underlying sort of narrative here, okay. right? I understand the narrative. I'm looking for what are the facts that come out of it. It's much more efficient for me to read the the news in the morning, pick out those facts, have someone have pre-digested this for mm-hmm. me, save me the time and the aggravation, right? The emotional aggravation of, of sitting through it in, in a live, like I completely value this as an experience that's necessary for the process. Um, it's also theater. Right, which is why it's on a prime time. That's good. Um, I look forward to understanding sort of the written word, not the theater of it. One of the things I'm interested in seeing, um, each of the major networks are going to be airing this in prime time in addition to the cable news networks mm-hmm. with the exception of Fox News Channel. And Fox has indicated that it will run on Fox Business. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of pushing it down, down the dial a, a, a bit. Mm-hmm. I want to see what happens and what that level of commitment might be com- on the part of the of 
the networks mm-hmm. middle of next week yeah or as we move into hearing six or seven and whether some mm-hmm. of those decisions and some of that commitment lets up because the mm-hmm. audience isn't there and they can make more money running episodes of yeah. reruns yeah. of yeah. young sheldon yeah or american ninja warrior I think that kind of thing is... Because there are going to be a lot of people in your position. Right. Or those who think or it is not. just theater and that it's Is it must-see TV? Right. I think the the value of an event like this is the trans, possible transformative nature of it in terms of changing the conversation and embedding these facts right, mm-hmm. just into the public sort of consciousness. Um, I'm sort of more worried, and we talk about it in a minute, about the coverage of it. Is it covered as a... Uh, a TV show affecting the midterm sort of strategies, or is it covered as actually news and important to sort of democracy? Well, I think it'll be interesting to see. I would assume that because they are scheduling a primetime opening hearing, Mm -hmm. they've got something they think is pretty good. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that sets the primetime slot, Mm -hmm. sets the bar, the expectation Mm -hmm. bar very high. Mm So um, it will be interesting to see how they unfold this. I think the frustration that I've detected listening to committee members is this sense of like, hey, wait a minute, the Capitol was stormed by Mm -hmm. armed people and where's the outrage? Mm And so I think what they're trying to do is marshal these facts in a way that will uh, dial up that outrage in, uh, to a level that they think is appropriate. Now, the but because the expectation level is high, mm-hmm. they're going to have to really show people something. And I think that'll be a big question. I think the other uh, factor here that's very different is the thing this will inevitably compared to, be compared to is Watergate. Mm-hmm. Back in the Watergate days, you could actually be surprised by mm-hmm. a witness. Um, and I think now it's uh, the hill is so leaky. Mm. If there's a big blockbuster, it's always going to be signaled ahead of time. So how much new stuff is there really going to be? And mm. if there isn't a lot of new stuff, mm. what does that do to the expectations? And, and regardless of what the facts or the delivery is, does it break through sort of the partisan gridlock in the public already? You people have already made up their minds one way or the other potentially. Exactly. And when you see one of the major cable channels saying, we're putting this on sort of a sub right. a sub channel right. here, right. Um, they've all, that's to your point, you know, they've right. made up their minds. Yeah. Well, CNN is breaking up with breaking news, and that's just it's one of... It's about time. <laughs> well, that's what we're going to talk about. That's just one of the changes <laughs> that we're seeing now that Chris Licht is at, uh, is at the helm. <laughs> the other is the reevaluation of the network's relationship with its partisan contributors. I, for one, find it refreshing. It is. It's about time. It... That term breaking news, Mm. it it creates a false sense of urgency. It's thrown around Mm. with way too much, um, uh, uh, way too quickly and and unnecessarily. And it cheapens it. It does. Thank you for, that was what I was kind of looking for there. It it Mm. cheapens it in in a great way. And one of the things I'd actually love to see even more is if local news stations followed that lead and stopped listening to the Mm. consultants who are putting that cookie cutter advice out there that the lead story in every newscast is breaking news Mm. even when it happened nine or 10 or 12 or 15 hours ago. Yeah, I mean, breaking news is news that's happening right now. Mm -hmm. That is what breaking news means. Literally watching it on the screen as it's happening. while we're reporting it. And so uh, I think, but what has been done is it's been used, as you said, to amplify the drama. It's being used now for uh, commercial reasons Mm 
and it commodifies news in a way that is really not true to what we're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, it's, I always tell people when, when, when we're talking about how do you really read the news in a, in a time of 24-7, mm-hmm. uh, all the time, on all the time. And one of the things I say is, have you ever heard about a small storm on the Weather Channel? <laughs> No, you haven't, because everything, there is a commercial imperative to keeping your attention, whether it's on a website, whether it's on a channel, and when you are 24-7, how do you keep people coming back? And this is one of the tricks, but I think people have gotten wise to it. And the danger is, what if there really is breaking news and a tornado's barreling down on you and you just tune it out because you've heard it too many times before? Okay, we've got two more things I want to make sure that we get to very quickly. We have little bit less than four and a half minutes to go. The first is word from the Columbia Daily Tribune's parent company, Gannett, that it is calling an audible and putting its plans to reduce the number of print days on hold. So the trip was supposed to be part of the second wave of a Gannett mm-hmm. uh, initiative <laughs> to limit the number of days in print and home delivery, but says it wants more time to analyze data and listen to subscribers, get more feedback, that it's not gonna rush to do it right away. There's a little more going on there. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on. This is obviously a corporate initiative, Mm -hmm. right? Which coming out of Virginia, not clearly made with every individual market in mind. So Columbia's got some really interesting things a, the Tribune's got competition with the right. Columbia Missourian. Small, smallest market in America that has two competing daily right. newspapers. So that's a huge factor. Uh, Tribune also owns its own presses, and they run 50 or 60 other newspapers on a weekly basis off those presses. So the cost savings you might have at a typical paper that's outsourced that work, you're not going to find. So obviously, this is made on a blanket policy applied to the Tribune. Tribune heard from its readers. I'm reading between the lines. Uh, and said, well, maybe we shouldn't jump to conclusions quite yet. Yeah, calling an audible equals oops. Yeah. That's what it really is. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting to see how many people still value that print product. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about a lot of the reasons why that is. We're especially mm-hmm. in this community, um, outside of the Columbia or Jefferson City metro areas, broadband is difficult to get. And news deserts develop in places where print editions aren't readily available in that same way. One last thing I want to talk about before we go, I want to take a minute to share with you an announcement from NPR that was made this morning, one that has a special connection to both KBIA and to the Missouri School of Journalism. Juana Summers was named one of the new hosts of All Things Considered and the Consider This podcast earlier this morning. She will be joining Elsa Chang, Mary Louise Kelly, Ari Shapiro, and Michelle Martin rotating through the host duties of both of those programs. Before NPR, Juana covered politics for Politico, CNN, the Associated Press, and Kansas City Star. And she got her start right here on KBIA while she was a student in the Convergence Journalism track here at the Journalism School. Juana graduated in May of 2010, and we were really excited to welcome her back to campus in December of 2016 when she was our commencement speaker and spoke with our graduates and offered them some advice and some words of wisdom. 
wisdom at that time. So an exciting opportunity, both for Wana Summers, for NPR, and for those of us here at KBIA and for KBIA listeners to welcome a voice back into their home on a very regular basis that has been familiar to them for a long time. It's great. M-I-Z. I think it's a, uh, you know, as somebody who did not, uh, was not fortunate enough to graduate from the Missouri School of Journalism, I think I can safely say it is a uh, real testament to the uh, incredible training that students get at this school. Uh, and what's special about the training is that they are serving their community while they are training um, and ending up in jobs like the one that Juana is going to, which is really, really special, a great thing for the school. Okay. Well, we are pretty much out of time for this week. I'd like to thank you for spending the last half hour with us. You can read more about each of the topics we talked about today on our links blog. You can find that under both the programs and podcast tabs at kbia.org. We're also available wherever you get your podcast downloads, including iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle there is at Views on KBIA. These are all great ways to watch and listen to the program again, leave comments or questions, see previews of what we'll be talking about next week, and more. Our thanks to RJI's Travis McMillan for directing today's show, to Aaron Hay for handling the audio, and Tim Pilcher, who composed our original theme music. I'm Amy Simons. Be sure to join us again next week when we're back with you for another edition of Views of the News.